We, we are in and concluding today a series called Game Changer, and we've been looking at the life of Jesus Christ, the game changer himself, through the eyes of the people whose lives he forever changed. And we have come today to the ultimate game-changing moment of history. And, uh, and I want you to know that this morning we're, go we're going to take a look at the whole day of that first Easter, and, and we want you to see what was going on that day in an incredible way. And so we're going to start with morning, the morning of that first Easter. Mornings of any happy day are, are special. Waking up on Christmas morning, waking up on the morning of your birthday, waking up on any day of vacation, special times. Those are good feeling days. I remember Saturdays were special days when I was a kid, waking up early on the morning because it was cartoon morning on TV. And in my excitement, I would oftentimes wake up slightly before the cartoons would start. And that was back before programming began earlier than six o'clock. And there was a test pattern on the TV. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but this is what was on the TV early in the morning. And I would sit there and watch that until the cartoons came on. <laughs> And some of you are saying, oh, that explains a lot about his mental state. And of course, waking up on Easter morning was always exhilarating. Easter eggs and chocolate candy aside, some of my most memorable Easter stem from sunrise service. I miss the early days with this congregation when we could still all gather as one family for a breakfast after sunrise service. And the men of the church would fix breakfast, and bacon was always in abundance. It was a, it was a great time. For all of our happy thoughts on Easter and other special days, the first Easter started out as anything but happy. When Mary Magdalene awoke on that early Sunday morning, while it was still dark outside, she was filled with a sense of dread, not joy. I suspect there was a knot in her stomach, her heart pounded, her palms sweat, her feet felt like lead as every step toward that awful tomb grew heavier. You see, resurrection was not on her radar. It was the farthest thing from her mind. And she wasn't alone. Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and others were with her as they made their way to the tomb, and none of them were expecting anything but an awful conclusion. There was no optimism on that morning of that first happy day. The apostles were in hiding. They didn't even bother to come help move that massive stone from the mouth of the tomb. None of the believers were expecting a miracle. The giver of life had been executed and placed in a tomb. Who, who do you sin for when the only one you know has the ability to raise the dead is dead? There was no hope. Mary and the other women that morning were, were simply responding out of loving obedience. You see, they weren't expecting an encounter with Jesus. They were expecting to embalm Jesus. If the birds were singing... They didn't hear them. If the air felt fresh and invigorating, they didn't sense it. I'm telling you, this was one morning that was anything but happy. I, I love the fact that sometimes God far exceeds our expectations. That morning, an earthquake frightened Roman soldiers, a dislodged tombstone, two angels in brilliant white, an empty slab with burial cloths intact where he had lain. 
Mary Magdalene assumes the body has been stolen, and she takes off to get Peter and John. She must have left before the angel spoke. Maybe the other women were still there when they heard the words of the angel. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Peter races John to the tomb. They both enter and look, and they both leave. Peter leaves with confusion. John leaves with the spark of faith beginning to glow, and by the time Mary makes it back to the tomb, she is grieving even deeper because not only has she lost her Lord in death, now they have taken his body, and she doesn't know where it is. Then comes her game-changing moment. Jesus makes his first resurrection appearance. Again, in her confusion and tears, she doesn't recognize him. John tells it like this in chapter 20. Woman, Jesus said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking him to be the gardener, she said. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. She couldn't have got him on her own, but she was bound and determined she was going to bring him back to his resting place. Then Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned toward him at the recognition of those words and cried out in the Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She knew at the sound of her name from his lips, he was alive. Have you ever, have you ever found it interesting that the first word of resurrection, his first appearance was not to a Jerusalem jur journalist or to government officials or to the biggest gossip in town or even to the apostles? His first appearance was to this woman of simple faith who had been such a loyal follower. People, this is part of what makes the story so believable. At that day and time, women had so little clout that a first century writer, if he wanted the story to be believed, he would not have written the story this way unless, unless it really happened this way. It was our Lord's way of telling everybody, this good news is for all people. Man, woman, slave, free, every, every race, every color, every creed, this good news is for everyone. It was a game changer. Suddenly, Mary heard the birds singing. She breathed deeply of that fresh resurrection air, and she knew at that moment nothing would ever be the same again. It became a happy day, the happiest morning ever. Now, now don't miss this in the story. The greatest triumph ever is not shouted from the rooftops, but spoken tenderly to a grieving woman, and Jesus' first words were not, hey, Mary, look at me. His first words were, why are you crying? Words of tender compassion, because Jesus knew that not every morning of our lives would be a happy one. You see, that's life in a place that has been devalued, devalued, shattered, and broken by the power of sin. In this old world in which we live, tragedy strikes without warning. Bad news often eclipses the good. On August 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 255 crashed shortly after taking off at the Detroit airport. 
The lone survivor was a little four-year-old girl named Cecilia from Tempe, Arizona. Rescuers found her at the scene of the accident, but she was in such good condition that they wondered if she'd actually been on the flight, but her name was on the manifest. And while the story will never be fully known, Cecilia's survival is likely due to her mother's quick response. Reports from the scene indicate that as the plane was falling, her mother, Paula Seachin, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her child, wrapped her arms around her, drew her clothes to protect her, to save her from the fall. God did the same thing for us. At the cross, he wrapped his loving arms around our broken lives and saved us once and for all from the fall that had begun long ago in Eden. When the pain and brokenness of this world parks on your doorstep and you have to face loneliness, not laughter, heartache, not happiness, tragedy, not triumph, then I want you to remember the first words of the risen Savior. Why are you crying? Because you see, if he can conquer death, he can conquer anything and any problem that we face. He will meet you on your most horrible day and turn it sometime down the road into a happy day. It may not even happen in this world, but that's okay because everything here is only temporary anyway. Because Jesus saves, we know the best is still yet to be, and that makes this morning a happy morning. Well, it's midday on that first Easter Sunday. Midday. Hey, did, by the way, did any of you get pranked this past week on April Fool's Day? Yeah, okay, I figured some of you did. Yeah, most of us are pretty susceptible even on that day. I saw a picture of a Krispy Kreme donut box delivered to an office filled with broccoli. <laughs> That's just wrong. That's... I think one of, one of the favorites that, that, that through the years I've read about is on April the 1st, 1998, Burger King bought a full-page ad in USA Today to introduce the left-handed Whopper. <laughs> Consumers were told it was designed for the 32 million left-handed Americans. It contained all the same ingredients, but the condiments had been rotated 180 degrees to make it easier for left-handed people to eat. But it was an April Fool's joke that thousands of people took for real and ordered the left-handed Whopper <laughs> on that day. Well, they bought into a Whopper, all right, but not the one with beef on it. By midday, midday on that first Easter Sunday, Jerusalem was buzzing. There are two totally different stories traveling across the Jerusalem grapevine. One is truth, the other is a Whopper. Both stories, by the way, have persevered through two millennia. One, he has risen from the tomb. The other, he's been stolen from the tomb. And it's a race to see which one will grab traction the fastest. The one who has the power, the one has the power of all of Rome and the temple leadership behind it. It's shouted from the street corners. The other started with a group of women and doubtful disciples and is being shared from house to house as if the news is too good to be true, but it seems that this is the case. You see, the big story was that the soldiers 
were paid to lie that they had fallen asleep and while they were asleep the disciples came and stole the body never mind if you're asleep you don't know who came and stole the body and of course we know that if Roman soldiers had fallen asleep while on guard duty they would not have been paid they would have paid with their lives for dereliction of duty on the other side of town, the disciples would have paid good money if it would have kept them from being rounded up and crucified like Jesus. Why do you suppose they were hiding? But by midday that Sunday, attitudes began to change. And in a matter of only a few years, 10 of these 11 apostles would all die for their faith and their belief that Jesus was alive. And you say, yeah, but which is true? Well, I think Charles Colson of Watergate fame said it best. He wrote this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put into prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. You see, by midday on Sunday, those opposed to Jesus were selling a whopper, and some people are still buying it. But when you sincerely look at the evidence, it's obvious only one can be true, and only one makes sense for our future. Well, we've reached afternoon on that happy day of that first Easter, maybe even a little bit toward the late afternoon. And we, we come across the story in, in the Scriptures that we so often overlook on this glorious day, and it's the story of a man by the name of Cleopas and another unnamed disciple who had been in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They were followers of Christ. They were well aware of his crucifixion and burial, and they are on their way back home on this Sunday afternoon to the little community, actually the little village of Emmaus that was seven miles west of Jerusalem. To say they are troubled would be an understatement. So many unanswered questions as they shuffled through the dust on that road that Sunday afternoon. As they walked and talked, the Bible says that Jesus came up and joined them. Now, they, they didn't recognize him. Uh, we, I don't know exactly why. Uh, maybe it was the fact Jesus had a hood on his robe and he slipped that up so that they couldn't see. Or maybe he held his pierced hands behind his back. Or maybe they were just so grief-stricken about everything that had happened and all the rumors that were swirling around Jerusalem that day that they didn't pay much attention to who this visitor was. Or, or maybe Jesus just disguised himself slightly so they couldn't know until it was the perfect moment. <laughs> Jesus asked this question. You, you can't hardly read this story without smiling a little bit because you know how it all comes together. It's Jesus, and he says, uh, what are you talking about? And it stops them dead in their tracks. Cleopas, with this downcast face, turns to him, and in a credulous tone, he says, you're a visitor to Jerusalem, and yet you do not know the things that have happened in these last days? And Jesus said, what things? <laughs> 
you can almost hear an audible sigh in the text. <sighs> About Jesus of Nazareth. Luke records it this way. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I, I'm not sure there are emptier words, more tragic words in the Gospels than those three. We had hoped. Have you ever been there? They told me I'd made it to the final round of interviews. I had hoped to get the job. We'd been dating several months. I had hoped she would say yes. The admissions counselor spoke of a scholarship fund. I had hoped I would be a recipient. The doctor said the medicine was powerful, the best technology available. I had hoped it would make me well. I visit my spouse's grave every week. I had hoped to be the first to go. Folks, I, I cannot find a circumstance where the words I had hoped enter in any positive, happy way. And perhaps that's why, even before he saw the apostles, this is the second appearance of Jesus, and it was to Cleopas and his friend, and maybe, maybe it was to snatch those words out of their vocabulary. Because you see, folks, when you lose hope, you lose everything. This is what separates Christianity from every other major religion in the world. An empty tomb shouts hope. Only Christianity worships a risen Lord and Savior. When worshipers want to honor the central figure of their religious worship, or when students want to honor the philosopher whose ideals they follow, one of the greatest acts of homage is to visit the tomb of the one they so revere. I've stood at Lincoln's tomb in Springfield, Illinois, I've looked down on what is supposed to be the tomb of Peter in the Vatican. I have watched at Arlington Cemetery in hushed silence the changing of the guard at the unknown soldier's tomb. And when I taught in Russia, I stood in Red Square and looked across the vast cobblestone courtyard at the tomb of Lenin. I'm grateful for Lincoln's leadership during the Civil War in preserving our nation. I'm, I'm grateful for the Apostle Peter's preaching and his martyrdom to advance the cause of the gospel. I'm grateful for the freedom I enjoy as an American because of the unknown soldier's ultimate sacrifice. As for Lenin, I'm just glad he's in a tomb. <laughs> but when it comes to the one who can forgive our sin and promise us eternal life, there's no tomb to visit with a body in it. Aren't you glad when it comes to Jesus Christ, we never have to utter those words, I had hoped. At that point in the road, Jesus takes over the conversation, and the Bible says he began at Moses and went through the Old Testament and told them everything that the Bible had to say about the Messiah and what he must suffer. Would that not have been a fabulous Bible study to hear? Luke, in Chapter 24 says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted, acted as if he was going on farther. Now, why did he act? Perhaps it was to test their sincerity. 
You see, Jesus wasn't on his way anywhere. Cleopas and the other disciple were his destination. This was not about reaching a village. This was about reaching into their hearts and their minds and restoring their hope. Do you realize this morning that you are his destination? That Jesus isn't about places. He's about people. And he wants you to have the same hope. Luke goes on. But they urged him strongly, oh, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And and notice this, Jesus at this point takes over as host. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared out of their sight. And they asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road? And he opened up the scriptures to us, and they got up, and they turned at once to Jerusalem. They had already walked seven miles to get home. But you see, when the worst day of your life becomes the best day of your life, when the worst news you've ever heard becomes the happiest news you've ever heard, another seven miles is a piece of cake. I think they hurried those last seven miles. Then again, maybe Jesus wasn't testing them so much as was presenting an opportunity. You see, Jesus never forces himself on anybody. He acted as if he would keep on going. He was waiting for them to invite him in. You see, Jesus doesn't come to you and say, you've got to do this. He has made possible our salvation. But it's up to us to make that possibility a reality by embracing him as Lord and Savior. If Cleopas hadn't invited him to stay, they would have missed the greatest game-changing moment of their lives. And so I want to know, have you invited him into your life to make him Lord and Savior? I, I guess this is what I'm saying. Jesus has promised us a beautiful, happy future if we'll take time to plan for the future by accepting him as Savior today. At the age of 35, Carl McCunn decided he was going to make this epic trip into the wilds of Alaska. It was going to be a photography trip, and he planned a whole year out to make sure he didn't miss any of the details. He, he solicited advice. He got his supplies. And finally, in March of 1981, Carl was dropped by a bush pilot about 70 miles northeast of Fort Yukon into the wilds of Alaska. He had with him two rifles, a shotgun, 1,400 pounds of provision, and 500 rolls of film. It was a glorious trip. The, the, the scenery was absolutely breathtaking. There was just one small detail that Carl had overlooked. He had not made any arrangement to be picked up. The error didn't dawn on Carl until August. So records his 100-page journal when his body was discovered the following February. In an understatement the size of Alaska itself, McCunn had written in his journal, I think I should have used more foresight about arranging my departure. Carl's tragic story represents the spiritual journey of far too many people I know. They haven't used much foresight about arranging their departures. They've just let Jesus keep on walking by. Don't let that be your story. Don't miss your game-changing moment. Don't let this happy day pass you by. 
I, I don't know if you realize it or not, folks, but when we boil down the whole day, the whole day of that first Easter, it all revolves around one single word. Your hope, my hope in this whole Easter story hinges on one word. And it was a word from the lips of the angel that was sitting on top of the dislodged tombstone. In the English language, it is three words. But in the Greek language, it's only one. Egerthe. Egerthe. He has risen. One word for the greatest game-changing moment in history. If it's true, it makes for the happiest day ever. If it's not, well, you know what that means. England's famous Prime Minister Winston Churchill planned his own funeral. According to the instructions that he left, he wanted two buglers to be placed high in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. And at the end of the service, what everybody expected was to hear taps, and that's what they heard. You know, taps, that military song that means the day is done, and when it's played at a funeral, it means a life is done. But what nobody else expected was that when the last note of taps was echoing through the dome, the other bugler picked up the chord and played Reveille. And Reveille is, it's morning, it's time to get up, it's a new day, it's a new life. And it was a glorious way to say, I believe that one word. Winston Churchill believed that one word. Do you? Because if you do, oh, Oh, happy day.